Welcome back to Heroin City, the podcast shining a light on women in history in all their glorious shapes and forms, efforts, errors and eras. I'm Lindsay Shaw and today we will be continuing on with the Yolande de Vinay story with the wonderful Jennifer Roberts. Enjoy. something you said you wish the biography that you'd written was called the fair brimstone because that was a nickname she'd got why is that the nickname was given her by the secretary of state for war in the english cabinet a man called ellis his son actually almost got away with buying Yolande. a deal was agreed there's a memoir and you don't get the full story but a deal was agreed they were seen going down in a carriage to the star and garter in richmond for a celebration dinner a ratification dinner probably staying overnight i would imagine but the duke of devonshire put his oar in invited <laughs> <laughs> her to to the cast to the villa for a big dinner and everybody went to and got very jealous because Yolande was flirting with the duke and at which point Yolande said well I'm not going through with it. But it was his father who called her the Fair Brimstone. And I just think it's a wonderful title. It describes her. It's intriguing. And I wasn't allowed to use it. And I resent that. And I hate the title they gave it. It's a cliche. And she wasn't the beauty of her age. She was very pretty. She was very sexy. She wasn't beautiful. But she had fire. She had fire. Is that the thing, the Fair Brimstone? Don't you like that title? I think it's perfect for her. I think yes. that shows the grit, the determination, you know, and like you say, there's something burned bright in her. Oh, yes, she burned very bright. Mm. Very, very bright. And also that someone nicknamed her that, a contemporary seeing that. Yes. And nicknaming yes. her yes. that. Yeah. A contemporary who saw her son being sort of sucked in, along, along with so many others. All There were lords and earls and dukes all falling over her. Astonishing. We haven't completely got to the end of the story, have we? This menage a trois is happening. The estates are being managed. She's amassing yes. her own fortune because she can't actually spend the allowance that- she gets, which is, you know, good for her. So then she has her own wealth to bequeath, right? Absolutely. We'll go back a bit in time to Claremont's death because the Ménage à Trois ends when he dies in 1890. And she is unconsolable. I mean, she her letters from the time, you know, she just can't cope at all. She's not only lost him, but she's also lost the person who managed everything. The only child of his who paid her any attention was the youngest son, Harry. So she brought the youngest son, Harry, into her fold. He said he would look after everything for her, but he had TB and he didn't have long to live. The poor man did his best, but he had to spend his winters in Switzerland. Yolande had become even more religious by this time, and before Claremont died, although actually it was finished just after he died, she built that enormous church in Cambridge. You know the Catholic church in Cambridge? No, but I'm going to go and visit for sure. It's absolutely huge. It's a cathedral. Its spire is higher than anything in East Anglia, absolutely massive. And she wanted to design everything. Everything had to be built to her own taste and fancy. And the story goes that the Catholic Diocese of Northampton, which is where Norfolk was, the house in Norfolk was, was the largest Catholic diocese in the country and the one with the least Catholics. It's always short of funds. And in 1880, a new bishop was appointed. What did he do? He heard of this very rich Catholic lady in Norfolk. So off he went to pay court to her. It worked because when it became known that they wanted to build a new church in Cambridge, once Catholics were actually allowed to attend the university, they then should build a church for them. She turned up, I think, on the eve of the 
assumption or something. I'm sorry, I don't know religious festivals they were, but she turned up on some relevant day with some flowers and said to him, and I love this, will you allow poor me to build your church? <laughs> just love the understatement there. <laughs> <laughs> and not just the church, the biggest Catholic church in England. And she did everything. If she didn't like the design of the altar rails, they had to be changed. Everything was to her own taste and fancy. So when you go to that church and you walk into it, I mean, obviously it's some years since, but everything in there was designed to her taste. Very high Victorian, very ornate, but that's... That's where she is. She's in there. Brilliant. When Claremont died, how old was she? Uh, he died in 1890, born in 1812. So is your mental arithmetic better than mine? Um, she yeah, she only had another six years to live after he died. So she was an old lady by that time. She built quite a lot of churches. If you go to the Catholic Church in Shefford in Bedfordshire, there's a window where there's a picture of that window in the book where she's kneeling, holding the church in her hands. Offering it up I thought it was interesting that you said that out of the six children, there was one. Is how was it? Five girls, one son, or four girls, three boys? Okay, um, seven in the end. She showed no interest in his children at all. She started off liking the one called Teddy, and he got money from her, and she liked him, but he went bad. He bought the Royal Court Theatre, believe it or not, and reopened it, but lost money in it. And then he began changing his name and opening companies and going bankrupt all over the place. But he did actually run the royal court for a while. And then the eldest one, George, she was in the army and he was in Canada a lot of the time. So she didn't see much of him. He was strange. She married a con woman who conned him out of his money and he died in his London club in the Louvre. It was only the younger son, really, who had paid attention to her, sucked up to her, let's say. The girl she was jealous of because they were younger so she didn't have much to do with them. Yeah, I think it's significant that the girls she didn't have a relationship with and the boy. Oh, she was very, very fixated on men, no question. And vice versa. Not by this stage, not by the time she was 78, unfortunately. Although she did actually, the lawyer for the Lyme Stevens estate was in trust. He was a young man called Horace Pym, who I think really had an eye to the main chance. After Claremont died, he began coming to see her aunt an awful lot which no doubt he charged a lot of money every time. He flattered her and she blossomed in his presence. She really did. There's a lot of letters about her at this stage between Harry, the youngest son, and the chaplain, Yvonne's chaplain, Michael Wayne, who wrote lots of letters. And it's quite clear that she blossomed when Pim was there. He flattered her and he got so much money out of her. I've worked out the sum total of all the legacies that she gave him and his family are worth five million today. Plus the legal fees, that's in addition to all the legal fees, which would have been huge. She gave him paintings, that she gave him a watto, she gave him porcelain, she filled his house with beautiful things. He did well. So she did have him. It's difficult to know who was manipulating who. She wanted the flattery, and he wanted a, a lot of money. He's written his memoirs, which if you look, you'll find them online, Horace Pym. And he talks of Yolande as being this wonderful woman whose father was in the military, <laughs> and lost his position in the revolution, and how during the siege of Paris, Yolande had been in Paris, and she had done a Richard Wallace, you know, going out every day to feed the poor. She wasn't. She was in England. Did she tell him those stories? How could he have believed them? Did he put them in the memoirs to make the fact that he'd made so much money out of her seem okay? 
I don't know. When I found those memoirs, I was just totally taken aback. You know, he was writing about how wonderful she was, even when she was on her deathbed. She was thinking of everyone around her and was... The letters from the people who were with her are saying she fights and she... It unsullies the money somewhat, doesn't it? I think he wrote it to unsully the money, exactly. I think that's what it was. He doesn't feature hugely. I mean, he, he comes in right at the end of her life. But her last years were tragic. You know, she, she was crippled by arthritis in her feet. Because, you know, when they danced en poire in the 1830s, they didn't have blocks in their shoes. They only had sort of webbing and stitching. The ankle and the foot had to really work because they were dancing en poire. It had only recently started that they were and her feet were crippled by it. There was one letter she wrote where she said, I can barely move, I can barely get around. I am not what I once was. She died in 1896. She was 84. And at this point, she'd amassed an art collection? I think Stevens had amassed most of it, but she went on buying with Claremont's advice because in Paris, there were three people who would go around together. One was Richard Wallace, the famous Richard Wallace of the Wallace Collection. One was Edward Claremont. And one was a banker called Edmund Blount. Now, he wrote his memoirs, and in his memoirs, they talk about how the three of them would go to auctions. Wallace, of course, was the connoisseur. Stevens had already started buying for himself in Paris, and then after he died, Yolande went on buying with Claremont's help and with Wallace's help for the siege of Paris. Her collection rivaled the Wallace collection in size and quality. It was that important. And when it was sold after her death, it was sold over nine days at Christie's. It took nine whole days to sell. Not all of it, but sell most of it. And it made a total of 17 million in today's money. She had Watto's and Velasquez, and she didn't have any impressionists. She was old-fashioned in her tastes. But she had several pictures that are in the National Gallery now. She had the famous portrait of Cardinal Richelieu, the full-length one. She had Watto La Gamme d'Amour. And interestingly, I've since learned that Stevens bought La Gamme d'Amour by Watto in 1837, and I think it was a present for Yolande when he bought her. The game of love. That's a nice touch, actually. And she had Marillo's, and interestingly, in her Paris apartment, because she sold the house in Paris and moved to an apartment in the Champs Elysees. And in that apartment, she had what has always been one of my favorite paintings since I was a teenager. It was the portrait of a lady from the school of Roger van der Weyden. Beautiful picture. And that's in the National Gallery. All these paintings were bought for Linford Hall because there was this massive house that Stevens had bought in Norfolk. You know, it had nine staterooms that were huge. It had 50 bedrooms, all to show off. It needed paintings on the wall. Claremont helped her buy them. There, there is a French art historian who's recently been doing research on women collectors, and she believes that she was very knowledgeable and bought art and was a big collector herself. I don't agree. I think she had Richard Wallace's help. I might be wrong, but I don't think so. So the final little note in the chapter of the will is that the son who she did have a relationship with, he did inherit, but there was a, a caveat. He had to change his name to Lion Stevens, that's absolutely correct, as did everybody else. And Grove House was to go down the generations in male tail, i.e. male all the way down, and no one was ever to sell it. That didn't happen. Basically, poor old Harry, who looked awful at the end of his life. Again, Mrs. Smith, she saw Yolande's funeral because when Yolande died, she had a funeral service in the Catholic Church. 
with the eulogy given by the clergyman she'd had most to do with, which was a lovely eulogy. And he'd given her the last rites the day before she died in her bedroom, looking out over this wonderful expanse of parkland. And he actually said in this eulogy, a transient Catholic in a different world, she had been lonely, in a sense, all her life. Now, that's probably something she had told him. I can see that, because in a way, as a child, she'd have been lonely, an only child under constant pressure. As a dancer, she would have been lonely because there was so much competition. You know, the dancers weren't always very nice to each other. Even with the men, it wasn't relationships that you and I would understand. You know, with Stephen says, I think she was lonely in a sense throughout her life. So after that, her body was brought by train down to Grove House because she was interred in the mausoleum in the grounds of Roehampton where she had installed her husband. He'd been buried in Kensal Green and then she did this mausoleum design. It's very famous now. It's a great, is it one or two star listed building? It's important. Have you been inside? I have. Ah, there's this enormous marble sarcophagus inside of which was Stephen's huge coffin, because he was massive by the time he died. Yolande's coffin was tiny. Mrs. Smith says so because Yolande's lady's maid saw her and said, come in, come in. So she came in and saw the little coffin in Grove House overnight, waited over by nuns, and then she saw the coffin being carried into the mausoleum the next morning. And at that point, Harry, the youngest son, was too ill to follow, too ill to walk even from the sitting room of Grove House into the mausoleum. He collapsed into a chair. A few months later, she saw another cortege, but that was him. He died in Monte Carlo, but his body was brought back. And he's there too. And and Claremont is there too, of course, because he had to be buried. He couldn't be buried inside the mausoleum, but he's in the consecrated ground outside. Poor old Fanny had to go in there too. I'm sure Fanny didn't want him to be buried there. Then Harry is there and Harry's wife, who was a very fervent Catholic. And that's the Oxborough Hall story. And that was one of the things that, when I was told about it, struck me that they're all together this kind of unusual family setup <laughs> all time yes yeah i don't know whether you know oxborough hall not really it's a 15th century moated manor house it is i think the most romantic house in england it's now owned by the national trust claremont's granddaughter i.e harry's daughter sybil was brought up catholic because yolande had persuaded harry's wife to become a Catholic and become a very fervent Catholic. Harry stayed Protestant, but the children were brought up Catholic. And one of them, Sybil, was then a very suitable bride for the very Catholic Beddingfeld family who lived in Oxborough Hall. They were an old Catholic family. I mean, they had been custodians of Mary, Queen of Scots at one point. So she was a perfect bride for, I think, Sir Edmund Beddingfeld or Henry Beddingfeld at the time. So she married him, and then as her husband sold Oxborough Hall to a builder who was going to knock it down and reuse the bricks. Oh, God. And she did a kind of crowdfunding exercise, putting in her money and raising money from everyone she could think of to buy it back from the builder. And having done that, she gave it to the National Trust. Yolande's head, as you go into Oxborough Hall as a visitor, the first thing you see, I think that's very in keeping. It's very appropriate because actually her influence saved that house. She didn't, but if you follow the influence, mm. it did. All of the present Beddingfelds who live in a, a corner aren't best pleased with that because obviously they are a little bit ashamed of her in the background of the family. Still, 
I mean, I'd be proud of it at this point. But yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, how it gets passed down, these sense of shame. But they were lovely. Um, I stayed there several times because they have so many boxes of Claremont and Nine Stevens papers because they inherited them. And they gave me complete access to them. And I spent many days going through them. Without a photocopy, I had to write down everything that was useful. And I was fed and watered, and they were so hospitable. And I slept in a room that I had to walk for miles to get to the room. When I did, I was looking down on all the wonderful Tudor chimneys. Oh, fantastic. There's a tangible legacy that you can see, even just in that bus being there as people walk in. What do you think Yolanda wanted her legacy to be? You said that she wanted... Grove House to never be sold. Linford Hall is now a hotel given over mainly to weddings and it's got Dubonnet Restaurant it's got her name everywhere but I have recently discovered that they have murder mystery weekends based on the story and <laughs> they have Stevens just died Milan's come back from Paris for some reason all the 93 beneficiaries of Stevens estate have gathered and it's a question of who's going to murder who presumably all the people are one of the they don't know who the beneficiaries are and I just think this is splendid that's brilliant <laughs> we should go we should definitely try that out they have to decide who's killed who for to be the, the main beneficiary of Yolande's will and the other thing is that grounds of Linford Hall were used for a lot of sitcoms back in the 70s professionals you rang my lord and best of all allo allo where rene's cafe was in a corner of the stable yard the outdoor not the inside but the outside of rene's cafe was in a corner of the stable yard at linford hall so i love to think that the cod french accents in allo allo and the fact that yolan <laughs> never learned to speak english properly another nice link across the it's all theatrics as well, isn't it? It's all part of performing. I love it. But what do you think she wanted her legacy to be? Back I then? thought about that. I think probably she wouldn't have thought much about it. But I think if she had, in her old age, she would want to be remembered as the benefactress of churches. She did get a, a rosary, I think building the church and she was so proud of that i think she would have been wanted to be remembered as a devout catholic who built churches then she might have wanted to be remembered for her art collection except that she was going to leave it to the nation where it would have been another wallace collection but shortly before she died the government brought in higher death duties and she was so horrified by that that she put a codice in her will revoking that bequest which is why it all got so so that's a shame well the fact that she taken that away so it no longer was left to the state perhaps shows that she wasn't that proud of it because she wanted it to be known as the line stevens they like the wallace collection but the fact that just higher death duties was enough to turn her away from that shows i don't think it was that important about her dancing years everyone had forgotten it then just one journalist wrote of a wondrous ballerina famous throughout the civilized world he remembered seeing her dancing apart from that it had been forgotten and i don't know when she was young she'd have wanted to be remembered for her dancing but in her old age i'm not sure the dancing is one of the things that i think has endured actually in the dancing circles wasn't she known yeah. for a specific dance she was known for the kachucha which is wonderful if you go on youtube there's a ballerina from the mariinsky ballet recreating it to the original music with the original costume and everything there is a description an habitué of the opera 
who describes that dance. Those movements of the hips, those provocative gestures, those arms which seem to seek and embrace an absent lover, that mouth crying out for a kiss, that thrilling, quivering, twisting body, that shortened skirt, that low-cut, half-open bodies. Can't say more than that, can you? I mean, that's definitely endured because I was told that she is still definitely someone that people talk about in dance circles, so... She definitely made an impression in in those six years. Yes, that was her great gift. That was her talent and her star quality. I mean, it was extraordinary. After that, apart from giving to charity and building churches, she didn't achieve anything. It was all done through money and through men. What she did on the stage was her. And although it wasn't as elegant as two of the other stars who actually were slightly better dancers, they didn't have the star quality. They didn't get all that attention that she did. In her will, in her French will, she leaves money to a home for incurable children near Paris. I wonder whether that was the fate of at least one of her little children. I don't know. It's a strange legacy when there isn't any other legacies of similar sort. Mm. So a sad life. You've talked about the physical legacy, the houses, the paintings. What can we learn from her? How do you think she resonates with us today? I think one of the things I feel is that it reminds me how much in the past women could only do things through men. I mean, obviously there were exceptions, so we should celebrate, but your average woman could really only get on in the world, do anything through men. I think that it is an example of that. Also, the fact that I said at the beginning that riches don't bring happiness because she was such an unhappy old lady. I mean, those letters at the end, she was not nice at the end. I do think that there is some misogyny involved in the fact that here you have two men writing to each other about how awfully she behaves. So you think, well, there's some misogyny going on, you take it with a pinch of salt. But then examples are given detailed examples have been given, which are actually quite shocking. The chaplain, who was a sweet little man, her own chaplain, because she built a chapel at Linford Hall, he had nothing to do but say masses for her and be there with her. When he was with her in Grove House, which he often was, he had to go back to Linford, a long way by train in those days, from Roehampton to Brandon in Norfolk, to say masses for her in her chapel on Sunday. And he had to go third class on the train. And then when he got there, it was a four, six miles to Linford. She complained about the cost of sending the horse to collect him. So when you read those details, it is very shocking, even though you're trying to realise that there is some misogyny going on. You know, they didn't like her, and also she was a woman, she was French and Catholic, and all the rest of it. But when you get examples like that, you have to take them at face value. But at the same time, you just think that's the sad, lonely woman who feels the most lonely she's ever felt at this point, because it's the end of her days, and... She knows it. Yes, and she has her lady's maid and she has the chaplain as her two constant companions. And she left, and you robbed both of them. I don't know why. She wanted Harry to, Gerard's son, to dance attendance on her at all times, and he had to be in Switzerland for his health. He was there a lot, and he tried to do everything. It must have been very hard for him. But he knew what he was going to get. He knew he was going to die, but he knew what his family were going to get. You asked about Grove House and the male tale. And the thing was that when Harry died, his only son, Steve, Stephen was, I don't know, toddler. Again, you had to have trustees and so forth. And when Stephen grew up, he'd inherited all Elon's money. She had many millions and Grove House and some of the art collection. 
He basically undid it all. He undid the tale. He sold Grove House. He fought in the First World War. I think he had bad eyesight, but he was an ambulance driver and he was wounded in the face. I suspect he had chronic pain thereafter, but he became a playboy. He just creamed through the money and he killed himself driving too fast. One of his cars racing with another person down the country lanes and killed himself. What was left of his money passed to only one daughter and she lost the rest of it in the Wall Street crash. Yolande's fortune just disappeared. The Lion Stevens fortune, the husband's fortune, that went to the 93 beneficiaries. Now, some of those beneficiaries were children in the womb when Stevens died because he just wrote a silly will saying, I leave everything equally to the descendants of my four uncles. He'd qualified nothing. When he died, the question was, who were the beneficiaries? You know, he said they had to be alive. <laughs> So was a child in the womb alive? Yes, they said it was. So that added another four, except that one of them was born 10 months later. So, <laughs> uh, so the legacy there was the years of legal wrangling. Well, yes, and you had beneficiaries who died, and so it went down to their descendants. Sometimes one beneficiary would sell to another. And wow. I mean, there was one man who landed up with four bits because he'd got it from various places. So very peculiar as well. Have there been any depictions of Yolande in popular culture? Do you know of any? No, I wish there were. Absolutely none as far as I know. I can't believe that. There you have this story, which, as you said, has everything in it. It has sex, it has money. It's just disappeared. We're on it, Jennifer. We need, we need to do something about it. I think we can, and I think you already have. She deserves um, it. She does. I mean, just that sad life alone and moments where she shone so bright, we can definitely depict it. So you've answered the next question, which is, do you think it's time for a biopic? And if you're going to go with what I've got, all I've managed to bring in, some people have criticised the book as going too much into the men in her life, their past stories. There's a point to that. I can see that. But on the other hand, if I hadn't done that, we wouldn't have had much of a book. You know, there's so little information that I can tell about her, that I know there's just so many gaps. Now, you can fill that with fiction, but you can't fill it with biography. But now, when this is what I focus on in my study with women in history, critical fabulation has now been devised in order to bring those silences, those gaps in the records okay. out. Because, you know, there's a very fine line between critical fabulation and fiction, historical fiction, but people like Mantell always did it so well because they based everything on such great research. Didn't she just? Yeah. Yes. So yes. as long as we discuss it and we're open and transparent about why we've decided to do certain things in a certain way, then I think we can definitely go down that road. And I think she's someone who even though the her early life doesn't come from her, there's enough there to build that picture. Absolutely. So, light-hearted questions. Do you have a favourite Yolanda fact or anecdote? Well, it's one that isn't Yolanda, actually, but it's to do with Cambridge and her church, because it's to do with the doll's eyes for idols. A lot of people in Cambridge say, oh, that the church was built with Stevens's money, which he made by inventing movable eyes for dolls. It's still there. I'll read you a quote from E.M. Forster, Longest Journey, and then I'll tell you how it happened. They waited by the Roman Catholic Church, the first big building the incoming visitor sees. Oh, here come the colleges, cries the Protestant parent, and then learns that it was built by a papist who made a fortune out of movable eyes for dolls, built out of dolls to contain idols, that is the legend. So, can you imagine, the largest Catholic church in the country starts being built in a Protestant town, looking down on the Catholics, I think Catholics, 
are still not allowed to do all sorts of things. There was a massive protest, leaflets, protests, the whole thing. They knew the money had been made in a glass factory. It was called the idolatrous church, idols, doll's eyes for idols. They called it the idolatrous church. People then forgot the doll's eyes was actually a shorthand for glass. Then said, oh, well, he invented movable eyes for dolls. So if you go to Cambridge today, everyone will tell you that, that it was built. <laughs> fortune inventing movable eyes for dolls next question is she kind of did have superpowers but if you were a superhero what would her superpower be sex appeal absolutely no question sex appeal at full voltage yes you've done it you've done it <laughs> raise one eyebrow <laughs> <laughs> you know the dining room in grove house is it the wooden lined one at the front yeah. of the house yes yeah. live on the left of the front door right? that's, that's exactly it yeah portrait gallery someone had gone to see stevens's father when he was an old man in grove house i think he was a cousin and he walked in and he saw the long dining room table set with one placemat and he had said to the butler, oh, that's so sad, only one case, Matt. And the butler had said, oh, yes, sir, it is. Fast forward a few decades, and Yolande says, from Roehampton, imagine sitting alone to every meal with no one. I didn't think I could bear so much. And there she is in the same dining room, sitting alone. I thought that was quite telling. It was a second widowhood, and... I don't think she ever recovered. If you were able to ask Yolanda a question, what would you ask her? I think I'd want to discuss everything, but I'm going to send a curveball back because the painting she had done in Paris in 1888, it's been sold recently. There's a copy of it in the rectory in the Catholic Church in Cambridge, but the original was by Carolus Duran. It's a beautiful thing. She's wearing a black dress with red background. Huge thing of big pearls which she gave to the church a few months later. It was sold. One of the ways I got hold of that family, I just followed the wills down from the Claremont family until I find living descendants and then I looked them up in who's who and there they were. It was sold to a dealer before he sold it on and he restored it because there was a great rip in it. He knew nothing about Yolande at all but he wrote, I was struck by her face, particularly her expression. At a glance, one might think that she is gently smiling, but a longer look reveals something else, and it is hard to be quite sure what. Her expression seems to segue between gentle warmth, mere contempt, and tragic regret. That it is capable of this transition gives the painting enormous, almost haunting vitality, as though there is something of her still here. Now, he didn't know who she was. He didn't know anything about her life. And those three things gentle warmth, mere contempt, and tragic regret. That's Yolande. Each is a different part of Yolande. Tragic regret for the past, and maybe the children, who knows. Near contempt for the people she landed up with at the end, because she did have contempt for them. And a gentle warmth, which she did also have. So what would I ask her? There is just so much. I'd like to have a conversation so that I could get a sense of who she is and work from there. I'd want to know what she'd do differently if she could. She wasn't given to introspection. You and I probably do think about things and analyse things, and um, I don't think she ever did. I don't think she was given to thinking much about the past either. I mean, in Paris, she was a great lady of the Second Empire. I mean, she was known for the opulence of the furnishings in her house. She was known for her beautiful dresses by Worth, which cost a fortune and for her immaculate Belarusian horses, where she went out every day in the Bois de Boulogne, and they were the best to be seen. Everyone was vying with each other for the best turnout, and hers was the best. She was never so proud of that. 
She had those years when Claremont was helping her, when she was a great lady of Second Empire Paris, and Louis Napoleon was putting on a great show. She went to the Tuileries, glittering balls, all of it. What you say about she wasn't given to introspection, it's kind of the downside of what I call pretty girl syndrome. When you get given everything so easily, it seems, obviously she didn't have everything given to her easily, but once she'd realised that she had power, then you don't necessarily flex any other muscles. That's right. I don't think she did. That's why I don't think that she was a leading force in acquiring that art collection, because that was a muscle that I don't think she flexed. And as a very talented woman, I don't see her as a heroine, exactly. To my mind, heroines achieve, apart from her years as a star, which was extraordinary, she did achieve that for the rest of her life. Maybe I would like to ask her what she would have liked to have done if she'd been able to, other than dancing. During the years that she was with Stevens and Claremont, instead of just being rich and being waited on and going out and all the rest of it, would she have liked to have done anything if she could have done? I think I'd ask her that. Because I'm sure she would have been capable of other things had she not been so brilliant at this one outlet, which was the stage. She didn't have any education, you see, other than dancing. I mean, she wasn't educated. But she was known as being witty and intelligent when she was a dancer. Very quick-witted with her repartee. How did that go? The acting ability as well. She could have used yes. that style quality in so many different ways had she had different avenues open to her. Yes. Diplomat, you know, all sorts of things where that charisma can really be useful. I mean, on stage, she did act, and she, I mean, she acted better than any of the other ballerinas. And apparently, her mind was incredibly witty. It had people in stitches. Thank you very much for being inside the gates of Heroin City today. And just to kind of add to what you said about her not being a heroine, one of the things we want to do here is shine a light on women in all their shapes and forms and eras and errors so that we can see them in their multifaceted light. Because, yeah, no one's one thing, everyone's lots of things at many different times so thank you for bringing Yolande to life for us because I think it's like you say she's an exceptional woman who had a fascinating life and people need to know about her well thank you for being interested in her thank you for having me on you are so welcome hope to see you soon uh, take care bye-bye Hey there, just a little reminder to say don't forget to check out our other episodes of Heroin City. We've got one on Pamela Conwin-Smith, we've got one on Bess of Hardwick, notable Northern English women and many, many more. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate it and we'll see you very soon.